Lord, we, I feel like I'm standing on the brink of a precipice looking over and there's no bottom to it. And I feel so inadequate to try to, <laughs> to try to teach how much you know when I can't fathom it myself. I, but Lord, would you give favor to, to your word? That we would, we would read it, Lord, and we would comprehend a little bit more of your glory. And your knowledge shows us your glory. And so help us to see, Lord, what you know. Let us, let us have a bigger picture of you, a, a bigger understanding of who our God is. May we, may we not have just this little dinky little view of, of our great, great God. So open our eyes, Lord, and help me today, Lord, to be able to serve your people well. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to meditate with you on the knowledge of God. What we, I guess it was three Sundays ago, we talked about the omnipresence of God. And in that message, the question we were asking is, where is God? And the answer we got from the Bible is that he's everywhere present at all times. So that was the question, where is God? But this morning, the question is, what does God know? What does God know? And what I, very simply, what I want to do is show what the Bible says about what God knows under four different headings. God knows all things about himself. God knows all things about his creation. God knows all things about the future. And God knows all things about the hypothetical. And that'll make more sense when we get there. But let's take those in turn. First of all, God knows all things about himself. And we say, well, of course he does. You know, everyone knows everything about themselves. But let's just start there. Let's, let's just start there. The three persons of the Trinity know one another. Jesus, in Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So in this passage, very simply, the Father knows the Son, the Son knows the Father. And of course, because the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead or the Trinity, we can assume that the Trinity, or the, excuse me, the Spirit knows the Father and the Son as well. The three persons of the Trinity have this intimate knowledge, comprehensive knowledge of each other. Not only that, but God knows his own thoughts. 1 Corinthians 2 verses 10 and 11 Say, for even the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit, this passage says, knows the thoughts of God. Just like any man, the, the Spirit within him knows his thoughts. Well, when it comes to the person of God, the Holy Spirit knows all the thoughts of God. And then thirdly, God knows his own plans. He knows himself, he knows his thoughts, he knows his plans. In Jeremiah 29, 11, the Bible says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. So of course, God knows the plans that he has, all of his plans. This particular one concerned the plans for Israel. Also, 1 Peter 1, 18-21 
Peter writes, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. And the part I want you to consider is that last part. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So the word foreknown has the idea of foreordained. In other words, God knew his plans concerning Jesus Christ, concerning sending Christ into the world to save sinners. And God knew these plans from eternity. So God knows his plans. He knows his thoughts. He knows the three persons of the Trinity know one another. But let's move on from there. Not only does God know all things about himself, but he knows all things about his creation. God knew that Cain had killed his brother Abel, even though apparently no other human being knew that fact. God knew it. Because in Genesis 4.10, he said to Cain, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So God knew it. God knew that Sarah had laughed derisively in her tent when the Lord told Abraham that she was going to have a child. And Sarah denied that she had laughed, but the Lord said, no, but you did laugh. God knew it, even though nobody else did. That's Genesis 18, 10 to 15. God knew that Achan stole a wedge of gold and hid it in the ground under his tent. In fact, God pointed him out by the, the casting of lots and it came down from tribe to family to head of household and finally Achan was selected and God pointed the finger at him and said, this is the one who did it. Achan paid for that sin with his life as well as his whole family. They were executed. God knew about David's adultery with Bathsheba. He knew how David had lied and how David had had Uriah, her husband, executed in the line of fire. And he told Nathan to come and rebuke David. David thought he had gotten away with his sin. God saw the whole thing and God knew. So God knows everything about his creation. But let's break it down even further. God knows every detail about the universe that he created. Now this is where it really gets fascinating to me. And we're going to have more about this next Sunday too, when we talk about the power of God. But Isaiah 40 verse 26 says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his power and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Okay, now that may not seem like much to you, but consider the words. Look at the stars, just look up, <laughs> look at the stars, remember who created them. He's the one that calls them all forth by number, and he calls them by name. Now, when we look up into the night sky, it doesn't look all that impressive. You know, you, I can't see that many stars with my naked eye, maybe a few hundred up there. But if you get the pow most powerful telescopes we have in the world, it changes everything you start to get a glimpse of the, the majesty of God. If God knows every single star by name, okay, well, let's start there. How many stars are there? Well, I'm not an astronomer, but I'm taking the word of other astronomers. They say just in our own galaxy, there's about 100 billion of them. 
and there's about 100 billion galaxies. <laughs> so do the math. I mean, okay, this is the math here. Put a 2 with 20, 23 zeros behind it. And that's our best guess as to how many stars there might be. I don't even know if there's a name for that many stars. 20, 23 zeros after it. And so I, I, I did a couple of Google questions. I said, are there more stars than grains of sand on the earth? Now just think of one beach, okay, if you ever go to Pebble Beach or one of these beaches and you look at that beach stretched out and the tiny, tiny, tiny microscopic little piece of, gra of sand, grain of sand, and you wonder, I wonder how many grains are just in this one beach. And then you multiply that by all the beaches in California and then Oregon and then Washington and then Hawaii, and Australia, and New Zealand, and South America, and Mexico, and India, and just go all across the continent. Well, according to the mathematicians, they say that for every grain of sand on the earth, there's probably at least 10,000 stars. And so, you, my, your head starts to explode, you know? I, I, can't, I cannot fathom the immensity of God's creation. And I, even this last week, I was wondering, why did God make such a vast universe when his, was his whole attention focused on planet Earth? Why then is it 16 billion light years across? And that's only the observable universe. Maybe it goes further than we can tell. It's just mind-boggling to me. But God knows every single star. He's given a star, a name to every single star. And he keeps those stars in their orbits and he keeps them... Uh, being maintained. God knows every detail about the animals on earth. Not only the stars, but the animals. How do I know that? Because Jesus said in Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Now, a sparrow was like almost a worthless animal. You could buy two of them for a cent, and I think in Luke it says you can buy two for five cents. So they throw one in for free. <laughs> you know, if you buy two of them, you get a th an extra. So here's an almost worthless animal, but God sees every single time one of those falls to the ground and dies. And I take that to mean that no, no sparrow can fall to the ground without God's knowledge and God's permission. He knows about every detail of his creation. In Psalm 104, verse 25 to 28, it says, there is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals, both small and great. There the ships move along, and Leviathan, which you have formed to sport in it. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give it to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. Now that passage teaches us that animals don't just get their food accidentally or by chance. God feeds them. So that lion that's hungry and hasn't eaten several days and finally makes a kill, it's because God's providing that, that lion with some food. I mean, just multiply that through all the animal kingdom on the earth. God is the one who's providing for these animals and feeding them. So God is intimately aware of every detail of every creature, animal creature in this world. He's intimately aware of everything up in the starry space and the heavens above. And thirdly, God knows every detail about us. In Matthew 10, verse 30, Jesus said, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, 
The average person has about 100,000 hairs. It's a lot of hairs. But God knows the exact number for every one of us. And every time you comb your hair, he has to recount because there's fewer of them. <laughs> right? But that's how intimate God's knowledge is of us. In Matthew 6, verse 8, Jesus said, Your father knows what you need before you ask him. He already knows about every need that you have. So that means he knows about our financial needs. Those, those months where you don't know where you're going to get your rent, or your mortgage payment, or you don't know how you're going to buy the food that you need to support, to feed your family. God knows all about those needs. And he knows about your emotional needs. If you're a lonely person, or like our sister was sharing, her, her, she has these fears that plague her. God knows all about those needs that you have. He's intimately acquainted with all of our ways. He knows about your broken heart when you go through that devastating time in your life. He understands. He knows about our need for Christian fellowship. He knows about every need that we have. And wonder of wonders, he still loves us and he still cares for us. In 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter says, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. In Psalm 139, verses 1 to 6, the psalmist says, O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Now, I feel like him. When I try to understand the knowledge of God, it's too high. I can't attain to it. So God knows what I'm doing always, and he knows what I'm going to say even before I say it. He knows what's going through my mind. Yeah, that's my next point. God knows what we're thinking. <laughs> Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, says that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So how was God able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart? Only because there's no creature hidden from his sight. Everything is open. Everything's laid bare. Nothing can be hidden from the sight of Almighty God. Nothing escapes his notice, including what we are thinking. So we might be able to fool each other and conceal what we're thinking from each other, but you can't conceal from God. He knows everything. Psalm 139 verse 2 says, you know my thoughts from afar. He, he's the perfect mind reader. He, he knows what's going on in our brains. Not only that, but he knows the motive of your heart. Not just what you're thinking, but what makes you do what you do. And that's crazy because, I, to be honest, sometimes I can't figure out what's motivating me to do certain things. I'm confused about that sometimes, and I'm trying to figure it out. Well, why do I do this? And I, sometimes I just scratch my head and say, I don't know. I really don't know what motivates me. But God does. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5 says, 
Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness, and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. So God knows the motives of our hearts, and that's going to be part of the criteria by which he brings judgment to all of us one day. He's going to disclose our motives. Not just what we did, but why we did what we did. So there we have the second area. God not only knows all things about himself, he knows all things about his creation, but then thirdly, he knows all things about the future. Now, of course, if he knows all things about the future, we assume, and I think rightly so, that of course he knows all things about the past. He knows what took place before he created the angels. He knows what had taken place before he created this material universe that we observe. He knows every detail about ancient civilizations that have come and gone and have been lost forever. He knows about every animal that is now extinct but once crawled or walked or swam in the, the waters of the oceans. But he also knows the future. Now how do we know that God knows the future? Well, Several Sundays past, we talked about the immutability of God. That means that He's unchanging, and He's unchanging in His purposes. And we discussed the fact that God has foreordained all things that come to pass. If God has foreordained everything that's going to pass, of course He is intimately acquainted with all of them, and He knows every detail about that. But not only is that a reason why we know God knows the future, but another reason is because the Bible tells us about God predicting things that are going to happen before they do. We call those prophecies. There was a prophecy about a man named Josiah who became one of the kings of Israel. In 1 Kings 13, verses 1 to 3, listen to this prophecy. Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. This was a prophet. This prophet cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. That's pretty specific. It calls this individual by his name and says exactly what he's going to do. This took place about 300 years later. Josiah was raised up, he became the king in Israel, and he actually took the bones of some of these priests, took them out of the graves, and had them burned on that particular altar that the man of God prophesied about. You find the fulfillment of this in 2 Kings 23, verses 15 and 16, if you want to read the prophecy and then the fulfillment. God also gave a prophecy about a man named Cyrus, who was the king of Persia. About 150 years before Cyrus was even born, God gave a prophecy through Isaiah. And it's in Isaiah 44, verse 28. God says, It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple, Your foundation will be laid. Now this heathen king of Persia, Cyrus, one day made it possible for the Jews to return home from their exile in Babylon. And God predicted it. He predicted it 150 years ahead of time, and he calls the guy again by his name. 
Now we might say, well I can see why Josiah, I can see how that prophecy could be fulfilled. Maybe he read it in the Old Testament and then he decided I'll just fulfill it. I'll just unearth those bones and I'll, I'll burn them on the altar and I'll fulfill that prophecy. But I don't see how Cyrus could do it because Cyrus didn't have the scriptures. Cyrus is a heathen. He doesn't know anything about the true and living God. And God says, this man by name is going to be raised up and he's going to send my people back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple and the city. And that's exactly what took place. God knows the future. God knew every detail about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have dozens of prophecies in the Old Testament about what would happen to Jesus. We're told in the Old Testament that he would be born of a virgin that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would live part of his boyhood in Egypt, that he would minister in Nazareth. We're told that he would be, uh, that he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, that all the soldiers would cast lots for his garments, that he would be crucified, which wasn't even invented yet when that prophecy was given by David in Psalm 22. It says, they pierced my hands and my feet. Well, they didn't pierce hands and feet in David's day. That was a Roman invention about 700 years later. But God knew, and God put it in his book to give us assurance that God knows the future. Also, it was prophesied that he would be laid in a rich man's tomb and that he would rise again from the dead on the third day. And that's just a little sampling. I've only given you about five or six. There's dozens of these prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11, the Bible says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. Whoops. I am God, and there's no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So God tells the end from the beginning because God knows the end from the beginning because God has ordained the end from the beginning. So God knows the future. Let's see. Let's track how we've, what we're, where we've come so far. God knows all things about himself. He knows all things about his creation, including the universe, the animal kingdom, and human beings. God knows all things about the future. And the last one here is God knows all things about the hypothetical. Now what I mean by that is, God knows everything that could have happened, like if this man made this decision, how this person would have responded to that decision, which would have affected this, and you've got this domino chain of 10,000 events taking place, God sees all of that instantaneously at a glance and knows. You say, well Brian, how do I know that? Is there any biblical evidence for that? Well, there, I think there is. I'm going to share a story with you from 1 Samuel 23. This is verses 11 to 13. So in 1 Samuel 23, David has his mighty men with him. And he goes down to the city of Keilah. It's spelled K-E-I-L-A-H. He goes down to this city and he wants to deliver them because the Philistines were about to attack this city. So David goes down to this city and Saul learns that David and his men are in the city of Keilah. And so he inquires of the Lord, and he says to the Lord, uh, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? 
O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the pursuit. So here's a situation where David is asking the Lord, So will Saul come down? And the Lord says, Yes, he will. Okay. Well, when he comes down, will the men of Keilah give me, deliver me up? Will they surrender me into his hand? Yes, they will. But the fact is that never happened. Saul didn't come down. He wasn't delivered into their hands, but God knew that that's what would happen when Saul came down. Do you see? It's a hypothetical situation that God knew all about. And that's the point. God knows the hypothetical. He knows the possible. Not just the actual, but the possible. We have other indications of this too. In Matthew eleven twenty one, Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. God, so God knew what would have happened in Tyre and Sidon if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in Chorazin and Bethsaida, they would have repented. Now, that didn't happen, but God knew that it would have happened. So just let your mind go. So let's say that you didn't marry this person, you married somebody else. What would have happened to my life then? God knew what would have happened to your life. What if I didn't take that job, but took that job? God, God sees the train. He sees what would have taken place. It's just mind-boggling to consider the knowledge of God. It's amazing. God knows what would happen if any of a limitless number of other options were to take place. Now, let's try to conclude what we've seen from the Bible about the knowledge of God. Let's try to summarize the biblical teaching on the knowledge of God. And we can do that in three texts. The first one is one for, or Psalm 147 verse 5, which says, Great is the Lord, and abundant in strength, His understanding is infinite. Of course, the word infinite means without limit. It's limitless. You never come to the end where you say, that's as much as God knows. There's not an end. 1 John 3.20 says, God knows all things. That's scripture. God knows all things. And then we end up here with the text we started with this morning, Romans 11.33 Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. So there's no bottom to it. You keep sending down that anchor and it goes down and down. It seems like there's no bottom to this ocean. It just keeps descending. God's wisdom and His knowledge are beyond past finding out. So God's knowledge is comprehensive, perfect, and exhaustive. God has never had to learn anything. That's how He's different from His creatures. We have to learn the things that we understand, don't we? It's part of His nature to know all things, and He has always known all things. Um, he doesn't have to study, or read, or observe, or ponder like we do in order to gain more knowledge. 
God knows all things immediately without effort. See, that's the difference. It's part of his nature to, to know everything that can be known simply because of who he is, his divine nature. God can't learn anything new. Now, when I thought about that, I thought, I'm always, almost, uh, what's the word, uh, disappointed for God. <laughs> because I get so much joy out of learning new things. I really love learning things. And I thought God never gets to do that. But I guess if God's always known that, maybe it's different with him. <laughs> I don't know. But he never learns anything new, and he can't unlearn anything he already knows. He doesn't forget anything. That's the kind of being he is. He knows all things immediately, effortlessly, forever. So let's see if we can draw some application. And we'll speak first to the believer, and then we'll talk about the non-Christian. What application does the knowledge of God have for us? Well, I think it brings comfort, number one. And many different reasons why. First of all, because God knows me. If God knows all things, He knows me. And I am just an insignificant microscopic speck in the universe. There are 7.8 billion people in the world right now. And interestingly, I, f I taught a series on the attributes of God in 1980. So I went back on Google and I said, how many people lived in the earth in 1980? It was 4.4 billion. There's 7.8 billion now. In my lifetime, we've almost doubled the population of the earth. Which is crazy. I mean, we, we've more than doubled because I was born in 1959 and it was 3.3 billion back then. We've more than doubled. It's crazy. But anyways, I'm just an insignificant speck on this planet and God knows me. God loves me. God cares about me. Secondly, God not only knows me, He knows my heart. Now that could be cause for concern. <laughs> But it's also cause for comfort. And I'll tell you why. Do you remember when Peter had denied the Lord three times? And the Lord appeared to him and he said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter kept saying, Lord, you know I love you. Finally says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. That's John 21, 17. There are some days when if God wasn't omniscient, we might be afraid that he doesn't really know that we love him because our actions don't really look like it, right? We have a bad attitude or a bad temper or we say things we shouldn't say. We do things we shouldn't do. Or our Christian life isn't being manifest that day. And, but isn't it good to know that the Lord really does know all things and even in spite of us, he does know that we love him, that he's changed our heart, that he's given us not a heart of stone like we used to have, but a heart of flesh, and that we do love Him. That can bring comfort, I think. Not only that, but God knows our trials. He knows all the trials you go through. Psalm 56, verse 8 says, You have taken account of my wanderings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? You've taken account of my wanderings. You've put my tears in your bottle. In other words, God knows every single detail about the painful things you've gone through in life. And it's as though he's taken every tear you've ever wept and putting it in a bottle, storing it up and saying, here, I knew everything that you went through. I was there with you. He says, are they not in your book? So God has a book, some kind of a record. <laughs> I think that's just talking about his inexhaustible knowledge of everything that you're going through. 
God remembers and cares and will be with us in those things. And somebody brought up the, the three Hebrew youth that were in that fiery furnace, and then one was walking with them like unto the Son of Man. I have no doubt that that was some kind of an appearance of God that was with them through the fire. And when we go through the fire, God is with us in those times. He doesn't desert us. He's with us to help us. Not only that, but God knows my needs. We've spoken about that already. But how discouraging it would be if God didn't know what I was going through, He didn't know about every need that I have, and He let me try to solve all those needs by myself. But God knows about all of them. And God knows my sins. And in spite of my sins, He still loves me. In spite of it. My whole life has stood open to Him from the beginning. And the Bible teaches me that He chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world, knowing every sin I would ever commit. He set His love upon me, and He set His affection upon me, and chose me to be His child before He created anything else, before eternity began. And let's just admit it, all of us have a skeleton or two in the closet that we don't want anybody else really to know about, right? We would prefer that we don't divulge every detail of our lives to everyone in the world. God knows all about those skeletons. He knows the things that could destroy our reputation. And He still loves us. How comforting that is. No enemy of ours can make an accusation at the judgment that he doesn't already know. The devil can't bring up any dirt that God doesn't already know all about. And hasn't already forgiven and hasn't already wiped clean from your life. God knew us from eternity, called us to Himself in full knowledge of all our sins and failings, and has determined never to let us go. For I'm confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Not only comfort, though, I think the omniscience of God brings correction to believers. Not only comfort, but correction. I think it provides a holy motivation to flee from sin. Psalm 90 verse 8 says, You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Just consider that. Every secret sin, maybe you've been able to cover it up and nobody on this earth knows about it, He sees. And that should be enough to give us what we need to, to repent of that sin. Hebrews 4.13 again. There's no creature hidden from His sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Let that be a motivation to you to live a holy life. Don't you desire that God is pleased with your life? And when He looks down, of course He sees our fallenness. And we all partake of fallenness. He understands. He knows we're but dust. But... Let's be as holy as a saved sinner can be. Let's not let that be an excuse for us just to continue on committing the same sins again and again. So I think those are good, solid applications we can make for believers. But what about the unbeliever? What application does God's omniscience have? God's omniscience is going to result in an accurate judgment of the unsaved. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, 
from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And here we're shown that on the judgment day there are books. One of the books is the book of life, where my understanding is that is a record of all those that God has saved. All the saved name, they're, they're in that book. But that's not the only book that's open. There's other books too. And the other book apparently is the book of our deeds, a record of all that we did during our time here on earth. And God is going to open these books. He's going to disclose His full knowledge of all of the deeds of all mankind. And that's going to be part of His criteria when He brings judgment upon each person. And if a person has broken God's law, which is recorded in one book, and then his name is not found written in this other book, which is the book of life, that person is cast into the lake of fire. Ecclesiastes 12.14 says, For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So we can't play games with God. We might be able to fool man. You're never going to be able to fool God. He knows exactly the truth about your life and every detail of your life. He knows that you've sinned. He knows you've broken His law. He knows that all of us need a Savior. We need a mediator. We need forgiveness and cleansing from our sin. And I think that's why Isaiah 55 verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He's near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let's pray. Lord, we stand dumbstruck and amazed when we consider who you are, Lord, you're so far higher than us, like the heavens are higher than the earth. All we can do is get a glimpse. But the glimpse we have of you is one of glory. It, it takes our breath away to consider your knowledge. We pray, Lord, that our understanding of your omniscience might comfort us and it might correct us. And Lord, if there's any within the sound of this message today, either in this room or on the internet or on Facebook, that are listening, Lord, that are not saved, we pray, Lord, that you would convict them of their sins right now. Show them, Lord, their desperate need for Jesus Christ, the only one that can bring forgiveness to them. And let them turn from it in faith and receive Christ as their treasure and Lord and Savior. So do your work in each person. Meet every need 
Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.